This is the Consciousness Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Preston. Each episode, I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. In this episode, I discuss the evolution of consciousness with Dr. Michael Graziano, professor of psychology at the Princeton Neuroscience Institute, where he runs a lab and studies the brain basis of consciousness. He earned his PhD at Princeton in 1996, and he's an accomplished musician and composer as well as a published author, having published several novels in addition to his published works. We had a great conversation about his attention schema theory and much more. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Michael Graziano. Dr. Graziano, I really appreciate your time you know, here with the Consciousness Podcast. So what I'd like to start off with, on your website, you mentioned that your lab focuses on the, uh, the brain basis of consciousness. So I'd like to learn more about what you're studying, what you guys are doing in your lab. Right. So uh, a lot of what we do in the lab uh, is partly theoretical development, just trying to understand how we can wrap concepts, scientific concepts, and information processing concepts around this question of consciousness. And another part of what we do in the lab is collect data uh, from people and try to understand how these theories make sense with respect to the data. And part of the data is behavioral people pressing buttons and looking at flashing lights on a computer screen. And, and part of the data is uh, brain scans. We put people in MRI, have them perform tasks and try to figure out which brain networks are involved in which tasks. So that's kind of, that, that, that's the kind of thing that we do in the lab. Okay. That's good. I, I don't hear a lot of uh, data. The word data used a lot when talking about consciousness. So it's, I find it interesting that you guys are, are doing these, these tests and these observations. That's, that's right. Well, uh, the science of consciousness, meaning actually collecting data and um, putting hypotheses to test, I, I think that's on the rise now. So we are, we are not alone in that, I would say. Yeah, and I've seen others, others mention that, you know, Christoph Koch and uh, Tononi and their measurements and, and a lot of the fMRI scans. Um, I know uh, Robin Carhart-Harris doing the fMRI scans with uh, psychedelic drugs and the effect on the brain. So it is good to see a lot more data coming out of all this. Um, so with that, you know, what really drew me to you in the beginning, and I, I recently had a conversation with Dr. Husband um, at a university of Tampa about um, consciousness and animals and specifically, you know, birds. And it naturally got me thinking about the, the, you know, human evolution of consciousness and that's how I found you. So I was hoping you could share with us. Um, I know this is probably a full semester's course, but, you know, just uh, quickly, if you could kind of share an overview of the evolution of, of human consciousness, you know, as you, as you see it, especially as it relates to your theories. Right. So I think you've, put your finger on it, that depending on which theory one subscribes to, you get a very different account of the evolution of consciousness. And part of the problem is that people are the only entities in the known universe that attest to being conscious. And that makes it very hard to look at non-human animals and figure out who's conscious and who isn't. So you kind of need a right. theory. Uh, and the particular theory that we've been working on uh, which is that, uh, um, in a nutshell, that we, we are, that what we call consciousness is a kind of self-description, and it's a very useful and important self-description, 
Um, we, we suspect if the theory and some of the details of the theory are correct, that this dates back quite a long way. You see uh, kind of beginning bits of it probably very early in evolution, probably even with the beginning of uh, vertebrate brains. That would be about half a billion years ago. Um, and you see things that you might even begin to recognize as almost like our own consciousness uh, a bit later with uh, mammalian evolution, bird evolution. Uh, so that's maybe as much as 300,000 years ago. And that uh, uh, increases in complexity. Um, and then, of course, uh, we have um, human consciousness. I imagine that every uh, animal, you know, the, the, only humans have human consciousness. And uh, horses probably have horse consciousness and, and birds have bird consciousness and so on. But that's kind of a, a very broad view, at least within the framework we're working in, of the kind of time scale of how consciousness would have emerged. And one of the notions you mentioned is, is something called social prediction, which if I understand it correctly, is the ability for me to be aware of your awareness of your consciousness. I know, I know a lot of philosophers like to say that I could never actually know if you are a conscious being, but you know, through reading your studies, it does seem as though there is something there that we do have the ability to really understand. We, we've, we've built this, this model and we'll get more into details of models and schemas, but we build this, this schema of understanding awareness and we're able to see that another human is aware. Is that, is that right? Is that what social prediction is? And did that arise at a certain point and help accelerate our own consciousness or the evolution of it? I, I I think so, yes. When we look at the way people use this whole concept of consciousness, one of the main ways we use it is socially. And so we attribute consciousness to others. It isn't just that we go around attributing it to ourselves. But when I talk to another person, I mean, I'm talking to you right now, and I attribute to you uh, a, a consciousness. I perceive you as a conscious entity. And that's very important. It's without that, without my understanding that you have a conscious mind, I can't even begin to relate to you on a social level. I can't make predictions about what you'll do next. Uh, and so that's something that's actually one of the main things that we use consciousness for uh, us humans. And so we suspect that this social component is it's hugely important. It probably came in early in evolution. I mean, if you're a zebra, you want to look at that lion and know, is he conscious of me? And so at a, at a, a certain level, it's, it's, um, it's an important process to have. And we suspect this probably expanded quite radically in human evolution. And so we have that aspect of it expanded to an enormous extent. And it makes up a lot of what we think of as our human-like uh, consciousness. And do you think that language played a big role in that also as we became aware of others awareness and then we were able to you mentioned in one of your writings something i thought was really interesting is because it's hard to imagine having a thought without language and i think at some point you mentioned that there was still this awareness and still this thought but what language really enabled us to do was to communicate that to others and then as a group to be able to 
learn from that and, and grow it together. So do you, do you see language, the development of language as being a, a key role in the evolution of our consciousness? Well, I think that you can have what we think of as consciousness without language. Um, right. And I think that language, obviously something that it, uh, it expanded in human evolution. Um, so language is hugely important for social interaction. Consciousness is hugely important for social interaction. They kind of go hand in hand. Uh, they're closely related to each other. Uh, and we even find that some of the same brain areas are, are um, involved. So uh, language on the left side of the brain involves certain areas uh, on the right side of the brain, some of those same areas are revving up with respect to uh, attributing consciousness or awareness to others. Uh, so there's a kind of a, a social network in the brain, sometimes called the theory of minds network, uh, because we build a theory of other people's minds, and it's deeply connected to language and language processing. So it kind of all goes together. Uh, but um, consciousness itself, I think, can uh, will, will probably predated language and it's something that can exist without language. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so when we look at this, um, I guess we should jump into your, uh, your theory, the, the attention schema theory, which I think is pretty fascinating, because I think some of my other questions will, will lean on that. So do you want to tell us a little bit about you know, the, the AST, the attention schema theory, and, and how you came about that and what it is? Sure. So to begin with, I think it's useful to specify exactly uh, what is meant here by the word consciousness, because uh, pe people attach that word to many different things. Uh, so many, many people think of consciousness as kind of the stream of consciousness, the content of stuff in my head. Like I'm conscious of myself, um, of my emotions, of my... Um, future, my trajectory through life, and so on, or I'm conscious of the world around me. And that's kind of how people thought about consciousness for maybe the last, well, since, since a century ago, really. Um, but recently, there, uh, maybe in the past 20, 30 years, there's been a real shift in the way people think about uh, consciousness. And a, a second question has emerged, not what is all the stuff that we're conscious of, but how do you get to be conscious of it in the first place? So what does it mean to be conscious of something? What is the, you know, the, the uh, subjective experience itself? What does that mean? So never mind for a moment the content. How is it that we uh, humans, we brain-controlled agents, go around saying, for example, I don't just process that the apple is red. I also have a personal subjective experience of redness, right? right? That's, that's kind of the question that, um, the question of consciousness. And um, that's the question we've been trying to answer. And basically what this theory focuses on is, is that, is, is we, we, we know from neuroscience, the brain is a big information processing machine. So how is it that this machine uh, makes this assertion it claims to have a kind of non-physical subjective experience or essence inside of it. 
Uh, how, what, what is that? What, why is it making that claim? Um, and basically what we're saying is the machine is building a self-description. It's, um, uh, it, it, uh, a brain can't make a claim. It can't put out a claim unless it contains the information on which the claim is based. And that's just logic. That's uh, basic logic. And so what we're looking at is why does the brain construct that peculiar, quirky set of information? Why is it telling itself, I have a subjective experience of something? You know, what good is that? Um, and that's what gets us into uh, this whole question of model building. You mentioned model building before. Right. Uh, so the, 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 brain, the brain is a model builder. Uh, it... it uh, where a model is a bundle of information that usefully represents something in the world. Um, so the brain builds models of things in the external world. It builds models of itself and internal events. And everything we know about ourselves or about the world derives from those models, those uh, bundles of information built inside of us, everything we know. If those models aren't perfectly right, if they're a little bit... Uh, uh, kind of cartoonish or inaccurate, then we are stuck with a cartoonish and inaccurate understanding of ourselves and the world. And in essence, what this theory says is that we have a bundle of information inside us that tells us that we have consciousness. And um, with that bundle of information, we are equipped to make this claim, I have consciousness. And if we didn't have that bundle of information, then logically speaking, we would not be able to make that claim. And so the theory is really wrapped around uh, why does the brain build that weird self-description and, and what are, what's the utility of it? What's the functional significance of building that kind of self-descriptive information? That's kind of a thumbnail. So, yeah. So what is the answer? I mean, have you arrived at, at an answer or an hypothesis on why the brain does build these, these schema? Right. So uh, we know that all these schemas or models uh, that the brain builds are simplified. They're never rich, fully accurate descriptions of reality. They're always schematized. Um, and that's because it's a waste of processing resources otherwise. Uh, so the understanding we have, the intuitive understanding we have of the world around us is incredibly simplified compared to the actual reality. Um, and I think maybe physicists are only now beginning to figure out what the actual reality is. Uh, but our, our brains build these simplified cartoonish models of the world and of ourselves. So why have this model that says, um, I'm not just processing that the apple is red, but I have a subjective experience of redness. And the, the clue, I think, comes from a long history of work trying to understand the relationship between uh, awareness or consciousness and attention. And attention in, uh, has many colloquial meanings. I, I actually I can't stand the word attention because of those many colloquial uh, meanings. <laughs> I'm not sure what other word to use. Uh, in, in science, at least, in neuroscience and psychology, attention has a re relatively specific meaning. It, it simply means the machine is focusing resources on something. It's processing that something. In yeah. Depth. And I remember right. you mentioning that there, there's different, different kinds. Like, right, I can, I can, 
focus my actual attention, my eyeballs and my ears on something in front of me, but a different part of my brain can say, oh, hear my neighbor making noise, and I can kind of direct a different level of attention in that direction. That's right. So uh, a good example of uh, attention would be you're sitting reading a book, but you're uh, attention, your focus of, of processing is on the sounds coming from the yard behind you. And then the next moment, that focus might shift to an internal event. You might be focusing on a memory. And then the next moment, your focus shifts back to the, pa the page in front of your eyes. So that would be a, uh, this uh, attention, the strategic shifting of your processing from one item to another. It's terribly important. It's fundamental to how brains work. And it's entirely mechanistic. It's something that's buildable. In fact, people have built uh, machines, computer machines, that incorporate this kind of attention. Uh, it's entirely understandable in mechanistic terms. Uh, and what hmm. we're suggesting then is if the brain uses attention um, and it wants to control its own attention and it wants to know what it's attending to, and it wants to know what attention is and what the consequences of it are, it ought to build a, a model of attention. It needs to build a model or a schematic uh, description of what attention is and what it's doing and what its consequences are. And that schematic model of attention uh, would um, have certain characteristics. It would describe very high-level properties of attention while leaving out all the little uh, mechanistic nitty-gritty details that a brain has no reason to know about. Right? We, we don't, the brain, in order to survive in the world, doesn't, does not need to know that it has neurons or synapses or, or um, uh, pathways. It doesn't need to know anything about its actual physical underpinnings. What it needs to know is that it has a... a a thing inside of it that has the ability to seize on information and process it and know and understand it. And whatever that thing it has, uh, that mental possession, allows it to react to things. It allows it to remember things. It allows it to understand things in great detail. It's a kind of personal essence inside of you that can glom onto things mentally. Uh, and that is simply a high-level, detail-poor kind of schematic description of attention, mechanistic attention. And so this is why we suggest we go around claiming to have a subjective consciousness of things because that's a convenient and useful way to uh, model and keep track of this very real mechanistic process, the process of uh, attention of focusing our brain's processing resources on something that that's kind of the heart of the theory is what we call consciousness is really a a, a schematic model or a cartoonish description of a mechanistic attention okay and these models you know it's uh and i think this is my own personal obstacle here and using the word models and, and schema and schematics this, this is something, a schema is something that's physically happening in the brain. Is that, I mean, it's not like when I see an apple, 
as a, as a former, you know, computer engineering student, I think of developing a, uh, you know, a bunch of arrows and, and graphics and I hit my model of an apple and now I can move that app wherever I want. The schema, your is it actually physical things going on in the brain, like, like different neurons that fire together and chemicals that are released. And every time I, I see an apple and I sense the redness of that apple, that schema is coming to life inside my brain. Some, like some resources are, are brought down, some resources are peaked, and that's what my schema is inside my brain? Yes, in essence. So in this theory, it doesn't matter whether it's a brain or whether it's an uh, artificial computer with silicon chips. It could be a totally different um, uh, hardware that you use. What's important is the information content. Right, so um, from the point of view of computer technology, you could hook a, com a camera on a computer and the camera takes in visual pixels and then the computer builds up uh, basically a simulation of the apple, a rich set of information descriptive of that apple that the camera's pointing at. And um, if you wanted to know about that apple, you could access that uh, rich description in the in, uh, built up inside the the, uh, the computer you could access that model essentially and query the model ask questions about the model and depending on how rich or complex the model is you could get a relatively detailed understanding of what that apple is so uh, it doesn't really matter whether we're talking about information processed by uh, signals electrochemical signals passing through neural networks in a brain, or whether we're talking about uh, signals passing through, um, you know, uh, logic gates in a computer, it's it's all right. information. Interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting point, and that's that's kind of um, what you mentioned earlier. Is these models are not number one. They're not. They're, you know, they're they're basic. It, it hence the word schema schematic. They're not rich in content, but also you said sometimes they may not be entirely accurate. And I think at one point you mentioned something that there are cases where the brain has even arrived at a false conclusion when it comes to, to building some of these models. Is that, is that, do you recall saying something like that? And is that something you could tell us about? So I'll give you an example. It's probably the earliest well understood example of how the brain builds a model that's useful, kind of simplified and cartoonish and not accurate. And it has color processing. Uh, we, when you look at uh, something white, like a white sheet of paper, and you see a plain uh, white, you uh, process that as pure brightness, pure luminance minus any contaminating colors. That's the simplified model built into our visual systems. That's the kind of information the visual system builds of uh, white. White light is pure. Um, yeah. That model, of course, is totally incorrect. And we've known that since Newton figured out that white is actually a mixture of all other colors. But the, the visual system evolved to develop this quick and dirty, simple kind of cartoonish description of white. Um, and now we're stuck with it. So we have cognitive access to the visual system 
and the visual system is telling our cognition there's this there's this pure brightness and it's stripped clean of all colors and we may know intellectually that makes no sense that's physically incoherent but we're stuck with the model that the brain uh, constructed so that's an example of the brain constructing a model that's uh, basic we can't help it it's built into us it's automatic it's simplified for a good reason because you don't want to expend too much energy building up a scientifically accurate picture of the world if you don't have to. You just do a quick and dirty cartoon of the world. Uh, and so it's useful actually to have it so simple, but it happens to be incorrect. It's wrong, and but it's okay. We, mm. we don't mind. Yeah, because it doesn't, doesn't hurt us in any way unless we're actually studying the different wavelengths. I mean, the, the notion has obviously not, not hurt us in our, our growth and our education. That's right. Interesting. So when you, you talk a lot about uh, attention, um, maybe almost reluctantly, and uh, because of the way it's defined, what about the, the awareness side? I mean, you touched on the awareness side. We've also built models that, you know, it seems like you have a theory of how attention goes into awareness and then maybe awareness goes back in, into attention, that there's a full loop that goes from the, the observation to the, the feeling of something which you describe as consciousness and then back to attention. I think there was something in there you described as like vector A and then vector B. And most people didn't study going, closing that loop and going back. Is, is that what awareness is when we're talking about awareness and attention within your, within your theory? Right. So most theories uh, of consciousness um, try to answer what I call the arrow A problem. How does a brain produce this internal uh, experience, this kind of ineffable internal experience. Um, and the problem with theories like that is they don't actually explain anything uh, because uh, let's say your brain somehow does produce an awareness essence, kind of like heat rising up from circuits. Um, then what? Uh, it doesn't do anything. It just floats there. How is it that it has any impact on our behavior at all? How is it that we can talk about it and claim to have it? So theories that focus entirely on what I call arrow A, how the brain produces consciousness, are uh, totally non-explanatory about the behavior of the system. Um, and they, they leave out what I would call arrow B. How does the consciousness stuff impact the brain so that we can talk about it and say we have it, or, or so that it can impact our choices or our behavior? Uh, so that's kind of a way of pointing out one of the weaknesses of um, most ways of conceiving of this problem of consciousness. Uh, and basically what our theory says is it's, it's hard. It may even be impossible to explain how a brain produces a non-physical essence, but it turns out to be really easy to explain how a machine claims to have a magic essence inside of it because it's building a simplified self-description and to explain how the machine can't tell the difference. It can't tell that what it's doing is really computation and data handling. That turns out to be relatively easy to explain. Uh, so in a sense, we're sidestepping the question of how 
of, of both arrow A and arrow B? How does a brain produce uh, uh, an ineffable essence? Well, we don't know, and um, it doesn't. Uh, that's what our theory says. In, 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 but how does a brain claim to have a magic essence? How would that claim come about? How would it be useful for the machine to build that kind of self-description? How come it doesn't even know it's a computed self-description? All of that is very explainable. And that, and that kind of uh, erases the hard question of consciousness. That's right. So, uh, of course, David Chalmers really uh, put that word on the map, the hard problem of consciousness. And right. He has a wonderful uh, kind of second uh, level of thought attached to that that he's been uh, uh, talking about lately. He says, in addition to the hard problem, there's also the meta problem. <clears throat> and I like that yeah, word. He, his uh, keynote speech at the consciousness event this past summer, that was, that was his presentation with the meta discussion on the hard question. Right. And in a sense, the meta problem of consciousness is, uh, why do we even think there is a hard problem? Maybe there isn't, but we just think there is. And in a sense, what our theory uh, lays out, the attention schema theory, is it, it, it answers the meta question, the meta problem. It says, here is why brains think that there is a hard problem. Uh, and so uh, in that sense, it gets, around, it gets around the hard problem. It says, well, there really isn't a hard problem, but there's a good reason why we all go around thinking there is one. Yeah, and it, it's hard to get around it. It's such a central part of at least the philosophy side of all this. But you know, it's your your uh, uh, attention schema theory and the illusionists um, like Dr. Frankish and Daniel Dennett. It seems as though there are there are theories out there that, um, like you said, kind of sidestep the hard problem. And, and within those views, there is no hard problem. That's right. There's there's no hard problem. But I would say one of the distinctions between what we're proposing and some of these other illusionist views is that we acknowledge there's very good reasons why the brain would produce this uh, kind of magicalist self-description. Uh, and it's, it's actually useful to have these kinds of simplified self-models. And so rather than dismiss it as some kind of myth that we can put aside <clears throat> or ignore, we, we tend to emphasize how uh, we're probably stuck with that. You know, just like we're stuck with seeing white as pure brightness with, without any contaminating colors. Mm. We may know intellectually that's wrong, but we evolved with that internal model. We can't help it. I think uh, what we're saying is we evolved with a self-description that tells us we have a consciousness essence, and we can't help that. And no amount of intellectualizing will ever make it go away. Uh, e even if we understand the mechanism behind it. Yeah. And so it's like you said, we're, we're not aware of the, the neurons firing and the action potentials and the chemicals. We're not aware of all that going on. We just are aware that this awareness model has been built and it is what it is. That's right. Interesting. Yeah. That's uh, I've got a question later on about computers, but that's, 
kind of leading me into to wondering about building a consciousness in a computer, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a second. When you, what, what kind of, what kind of studies are you doing? I'm curious about, I know I, I think I read something about the, the dot experiment and what other, and when you first um, described your lab and what you guys are doing, you know, you're getting feedback from individuals and you're studying both fMRIs. Um, are you able to, to measure or to see with a, an actual scan? Are you able to see a schema come to life inside the brain and, and see where that is or how that's working and, and re replicate that? And then at the same time, what other um, experiments have you been doing that, you know, shed light on, on the AST? Right. Well, one branch of work in the lab is putting people in scanners, trying to understand what underlying brain networks are involved. And uh, that's very interesting work. Uh, in a sense, though, it doesn't get at the, the theoretical heart of what consciousness is, because uh, you can point to parts of the brain and you can say, ha, we found this part of the brain is involved somehow. Uh, and that's, that's exciting to map out what the networks are. Uh, but that kind of data is probably consistent with a variety of different theories about consciousness, uh, localizing it in the brain. I mean, that's, that's something that's of interest to everyone uh, studying consciousness right. in neuroscience. And so we do studies like that. And we have cases where, uh, for example, people in the scanner look at a, a, a visual images, and in condition A, there's a certain visual stimulus that they're conscious of. And in condition B, we tweak the timing a little bit so that they're no longer conscious of that particular image. Uh, but we know it got in and influenced their brains and their behavior because it affects their reaction times, for example. And then we can look in the brain and say, what brain areas are more active when they're conscious of that image versus when they're not conscious of it? Uh, that's just an example. So we find areas of the brain associated with one's own visual consciousness. Um, we find areas of the brain that are active when you look at someone else and attribute consciousness to the, somewhat, to, to the other person. Um, and they seem actually to overlap. It seems like the same networks in the brain are involved in uh, uh, computing information about consciousness, whether it's uh, someone else's consciousness or your own, whether you're attributing a conscious state to someone else or attributing a conscious state to yourself. It seems like very similar and overlapping networks in the brain. And so that's very interesting to us. Uh, but that's yeah. one whole line of, of work is just where these things are in the brain. Okay. And what about these, uh, these dot experiments? I mean, I, I remember reading about you know, somebody who had a damaged, you know, just one hemisphere of, of his brain was damaged, you know, which meant he couldn't process or be aware of something visual coming from the right. So, like, if you, you showed a dot or he, he was aware of the dot, I guess, I guess he was able to pay attention to the dot but wasn't aware of it. That's or also, right. I guess, throwing, throwing a ball at somebody because their brain is able to duck it but had no idea why, why he ducked. That's right. So there's this uh, really, well, it's actually quite tragic and horrible syndrome that uh, psychologists get very excited about called neglect, hemispatial neglect. And it's caused by damage 
usually to the right side of the brain, but sometimes to the left. It can sometimes be reversed. But typically in neglect, damage to one side of the brain leads to a loss of awareness of everything on the other side of space, just gone. You don't even conceive that there is a left side of space. It just disappears on you. You don't notice it's missing. You don't talk to people over there. You don't dress that side of your body. Uh, you eat the food on half your plate, and you don't even think to try to look at the other half of your plate. It's just erased from your mind. Uh, but wow. you can still process information. That's the interesting thing. Um, there's a, a really wonderful, spooky study uh, by Halligan and Marshall where uh, people with this syndrome looked at a picture of a house and on the right side, which they could, uh, which they were conscious of, was an ordinary house. But on the left side of the house, there were flames coming out of the window. And then you would ask this person, um, tell us about this house. And they would say, well, it's a house. It's got a window. It's got a door. And then you ask them, is there anything unusual about the house? They would say, no, it's a house. Because they're not conscious of that left side. And you ask them, right. do you want to live in the house? And they would say, definitely not. Uh, <laughs> Something, I don't know why, I don't like that house. And so information from the non-conscious side gets in and it's processed at a very high level. You just can't attach awareness to it. The awareness computation, this internal model in our theory, this uh, way of, of modeling uh, yourself and your relationship to the world is broken on that side of space. Uh, and so you can, you can definitely separate processing of information and attention in the sense of focusing on information from being uh, reported, uh, reportably conscious of information. Yeah, that's interesting. And you're, and you're, the scheme is do, do seem to, to fit well within understanding what could possibly be going on there. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's uh that is a tough situation for that person. I didn't really think it, think it all the way through. I, I, it's, it's almost tragic as a human being, but it's also, it, it was kind of funny thinking about, yeah, I don't want to live in that house, even though there was no awareness of that. Um, and so that, with the, the, the degradation of the brain or, or the damage in the brain, would, would imply that there are physical components of the brain that are responsible for developing those awareness models. That's right, yes. And indeed, those are the same brain areas that we find over and over in our experiments. So the same brain areas that light up when you look at someone else and answer the question, is he aware of something next to him? It's the same brain areas that, when damaged, uh, lead to this neglect condition. Hmm. And do you ever do you ever get into psychology with with these with these models and these schemas? I mean, do you ever look at what if there's a model for the ego? I imagine the ego is just too big to say that there's a model. It's probably all these different connected models. And I've heard some talk about the the default mode network, you know, potentially taking on the role of the ego. Is so? Have you looked at at ego in terms of, of your your theory and and how that might be? Um, constructed right well we're pretty sure there is something like a self model in the brain which is probably as you said very complicated mm. 
has many components, spans many brain areas. Um, and we think that's a very important part of this whole process uh, to kind of break it down, to go back to this simple example of the apple. When I say, I am conscious of the apple, implied in that are three components. First, I have to know what I is, you know, what, what that I thing is. I have to have a self-model, um, a physical model of myself, a psychological model of myself, and that's kind of this ego component you're talking about. Second, I need some kind of visual model of the apple. And third, I need some kind of a description or model of my, um, my relationship to the apple, the, the, you know, the, the computational relationship between my brain and that apple. And it's only with all three components that I have the, the uh, ability to say, I am aware of the apple. Uh, so the, the ego is very important in that, in that larger equation. Yes. Yeah, it sure does make that simple sentence a lot more complex. Yes. Understanding that. Uh, have there, have any, uh, you mentioned, as you discuss this, and even as I read your writing, you mentioned, you keep saying, like, if the ASP is proven correct, or, you know, if we find out that it is, in fact, true, which means you're still working on it. Have, have there been any um, contrary arguments or alternate theories, conflicting theories that have, that have given you pause, that have made you think to yourself, hmm, you know, that really might affect the outcome or the, you know, where we end up with this theory. Anything out there kind of made you think, you know, second? I mean, maybe many times, but anything particular you want to tell us about? Uh, I think the answer is no. There are lots of other theories out there. I kind of group them into uh, theories that at their heart are rational and mechanistic and data-based. Um, and theories that at their heart are uh, sometimes called dualist. Uh, you know, yeah. theories that have a little pinch of irrationality in them. Uh, and the rationalist mechanistic theories, one of the things I'm so encouraged by is that I see connections between our AST and these other theories. Uh, in fact, I think they're all a little bit aspects of the same underlying um, uh, truth in there. And so we see very close connections between our theory and, for example, higher order thought theory to throw out a name or the um, global workspace theory to throw out another name. I mean, there, there, are, there are theories out there that actually kind of begin to fit together in interesting ways. Um, and we, we think our theory contributes this extra component that, that helps the whole process. Uh, so I don't see conflicts there. Uh, I see a lot of things uh, converging there. Uh, but I do think that this other kind of theory, the dualistic theory, the theory that says there really is a non-physical essence that either pre, uh, you know, exists prior to the brain or is somehow um, exuded by the brain like heat out of circuitry, uh, that kind of theory is just fundamentally incompatible uh, with the um, mechanistic approach that, that we're taking. Yeah, so those mechanistic theories, the, the ones that uh, there might be some synergy there or, or supporting each other, there, there are these other dualistic theories, um, which, which, you know, make me laugh a little bit. We, uh, you had a really good article out there where you, met, you call them phlegm, you know, theories. And so when you're talking about like panpsychism and dualism and, and 
idealism and, you know, different things out there that, you know, like you said, I think you just said they have, they have a tinge of, you know, inconsistency, or I think you put it a different way, but you know, there's uh, something in there that you just, you can never quite reconcile, you know, the way you can with like, you know, I think your theory works really well. I feel like I can almost explain everything, you know, using the AST, but some of these theories are, you know, you can't, you can't buy them into them at all. You know, I know there's like the integrated information theory and, you know, these different things. Do you have any, any thoughts on those or, or do you just cover that? Well, I, it, I guess that the, the general idea, um, my general take on this uh, dualistic kind of theory uh, is that somewhere at the root of them is a guess. Um, and it's very hard. There, there, there's typically no clear logic connecting the uh, premise to the conclusion. And that, that's kind of at the heart of many of these theories. And, I, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the phlegm theories. I called them phlegm theories because in the Middle Ages, there was this notion that having too much phlegm caused you to be lazy or phlegmatic. Uh, and that theory works analogically because phlegm is a sluggish substance, and so maybe it would cause people to be sluggish. Uh, but then you're stuck right. with this case where what exactly is the engineering logic that connects one to the other? Like if you took a beaker of phlegm and injected it into somebody, what's the mechanism that causes them to then become lazy? Uh, and that's never explained. And so that's kind of a phlegm theory is one where there's a guess, but there's no logic to connect uh, A to B. Uh, and that's kind of at the heart of many of those theories. And so in a sense, uh, what we want to do is come up with a theory that uh, has engineering logic to it, that connects the premise to the conclusion. And, um, and that, that, I mean, I, I, my background is in how the brain controls movement. And so I have this very engineering kind of perspective on the, on the question. Uh, and in the end, this, this is what I want to know. Uh, essentially, how can you build the thing? Um, and uh, you can't build it unless you truly understand um, all, all the components. Or, or to put it differently, supposing uh, you had said way back in the day, you went to the Wright brothers and said, oh, here's how you build a flying machine. Uh, make it as complicated as possible, and flight will inevitably emerge from the complexity. I mean, that doesn't make any sense and would not have helped them very much. Uh, and so right. I sort of, if you want to build or you want to understand the conscious machine, then it's not good enough to say, uh, it just emerges from um, complexity, for example, or whatever other guess you have. Yeah, or else why hasn't the, the worldwide internet woken up? That's right. It will never do that until it has uh, the consciousness algorithms specifically built into it. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's, you know, the... <laughs> And I, I always, I always tend to come right back to the the physicalist view of things, and and right along there with you. But I talk to so many people, so many like super intelligent, educated people, about things like you know the psi phenomenon, near death experiences. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Dr. Dean Radin's double slit experiment. Um, for those of us who went had to go through quantum physics in school, you know, you learn the famous double slit experiment in quantum physics. And 
his experiment had some uh, amazing outcomes with people affecting the outcome of it using their minds. And um, there's just so many accounts. There, there, there is this gap. There's a gap, it seems, between the, the outcome and the hypothesis that we can't seem to get to. But have you ever looked at some of these phenomena and, and thought to yourself, you know what, I can see a way that uh, schema and modeling, you know, will will answer this question or will close that gap or are you kind of of the the mind that um these these things just are not happening well let's take for example the near-death experiences um it's a very fraught field and there's kind of two parts to that field of study and one part says when people are near dying very strange things go on in the brain that give them uh, distinctive kinds of experiences. And if they survive after all, then they can report those experiences. And that's something interesting to study. And uh, that's the more scientific side. And there's a whole science of near-death experiences. And I don't want to denigrate that because it's actually a really interesting uh, scientific area of study. But there's another side to it, which says... Uh, when you die, even if your brain shuts off 100%, you're still there, your consciousness is still there. And that side seems to be uh, pseudoscience. That is, the evidence for it is awful. You will not find papers on that in the um, uh, highest integrity peer-reviewed journals. Um, but you, you find claims, and the claims are very telltale. For example, people will say... Uh, no, no, the brain was 100% dead. We know that because we had electrodes pasted on the outside and didn't uh, measure any brain activity. And so we know it was 100% dead, and yet the person uh, came back and, and claimed to have had experiences. Uh, and that's a very telltale uh, claim because there's no possible way you can measure brain activity from the outside and be sure that there's no brain activity in there. Like that's not even, that doesn't um, make any logical or scientific sense. Uh, and so the, that's an example, I would say, of how you can have interesting scientific questions to ask, but uh, the more um, metaphysical claims, let's just say, really have not held up. Uh, so the, the, the other work I, I haven't heard specifically about the um, the double slit experiment being influenced by people's thoughts, but I would guess that goes in the same category. I, I just, in, unless you have really good data that can make it past peer review at uh, um, really uh, uh, key journals, I would not, I would not believe any of that. Yeah. And his, his does appear to be going through the peer review and, and getting some interesting results, um, which kind of flipped me out a little bit, but it was, there just seems to be, I saw, uh, I saw John Cleese on, on YouTube, and I mentioned this in the last episode too, where he moderated a panel from DOPS over at University of Virginia talking about, you know, near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences and transfers of consciousness. And, and he said there seems to be so much observ observance of this kind of thing that to, to just say it doesn't exist isn't quite enough. But it's so hard to study because it's not, you can't repeat it. You can't say, okay, let's set this up so that I can repeat the, the circumstances over and over and over again and make observations. It's all these one-off accounts that, that, you know, people really believe 
that this is going on, but it's so hard to study, it seems, you know, to do, study it scientifically. Well, so here's the thing. You actually can uh, reliably produce near-death experiences, and it has been studied in the lab in great detail. And there are genuine hmm. experiences, uh, or, I, 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 sorry, I mean out-of-body experiences. You mentioned out-of-body experiences. You can actually reliably produce those in the lab. Uh, and I think that there are genuine perceptions people have. Um, and you can study those perceptions. You can induce them actually by electrically stimulating a particular part of the brain. Uh, and the part of the brain that you need to stimulate is the same part of the brain that keeps coming up in our experiments and other experiments related to uh, constructing the self model. Mm. And what the out of body experience is, it's not that I want to deny that people have the experience. Uh, people feel like that. They feel like they're floating out of their body. Uh, but what it seems to happen is that the computations about where you are in relation to your body, in other words, the computations building the self model are screwing up. The computations are being scrambled. And you can scramble them in a variety of different ways, including electrical stimulation to this one particular part of the brain. Uh, and so you can reliably mess up those computations and have people start saying, oh my God, I'm floating outside of my body. Uh, so it's not that the experience doesn't exist. However, uh, when you test these things um, and you really put them under uh, controlled experiments, it's not that there actually is something floating outside the person's body. Uh, seeing from a truly different perspective, gaining new information, visual information that they would not have from their own uh, physical perspective. It's a perception. It's a misperception. Uh, but it's a very potent one, of course. And so people yeah. do have very potent perceptions. And uh, they exist all over. They're very common. And um, it'd be silly to deny that that whole world of, of um perception, out-of-body experience, near-death experience, and so on. Of course it exists. Of course people perceive things that way. Um, but we have uh, now much more powerful, much more um, mechanistic explanations for why um, people uh, have those kinds of perceptions, what's constructing the information in the brain on which those claims are based. Yeah, that, that's exciting to think that there would be something observable and, and understandable that we can really see is, is explaining this. And it, and it does, uh, as you explain it, it does feel like it's got a real good potential there as opposed to a leap of faith. Right. Um, one thing I'm curious about is, uh, and I'm not sure I have your entire theory down and, and the model correctly, but you know, when you, uh, you pay attention to your brain, allocates resources to, to paying attention to something. And then there's a model built that is awareness. I'm aware of that, that thing that I'm paying attention of. Is there ever a case, and, and my, I was wondering if maybe dreams or hallucinations or meditative states, is there ever a case where awareness starts first? You know, if somebody has a dream of something that, that never existed, you know, is, is there ever a case at which, you know, the brain can generate its own schema that does not come from an observation or paying attention to something first? My guess is probably yes. Uh, 
as soon as you understand awareness or consciousness as this constructed model, you get into this um, realization that the model can be built in all kinds of different ways. It, it can make mistakes. It can become dissociated from the thing it's supposed to model. You can have all kinds of different uh, weird, um, uh, I guess, illusions of consciousness or cases where the normal mechanism breaks down. Yes, of course. Um, I think the, the, the research on that uh, uh, is mostly focused on one specific circumstance, and that is when you can pay attention to something but not be conscious of it. And that uh, uh, turns out to be a fairly common circumstance and something that we can right. in the lab. But to have some kind of uh, uh, awareness model constructed, meanwhile, there's nothing in specific that you're aware of, <laughs> nothing that you're focusing attention on. I, I, yeah, that, that may be possible too. All these things can go wrong. Uh, as, soon, as soon as you begin to understand the thing in a mechanistic way, you start to see where the pieces can uh, make mistakes. Yeah, I think that's part of the, the elegance of this theory also is that um, it accounts for the fact that things are, can be wrong and, and, and mistakes and, and all that because that, that is reality. And so yes. it's not, not, you know, not a hard, like it must be one, two, three, sometimes it's two and a half. And so I, I like that. That works. Um, but I know we're running out of time here. I, wanna, I wanted to ask you a, a couple of questions or maybe you're outside the specific thing, but in, in looking at your, your biography, it's uh, very impressive, you know, the, your music. You know, obviously a musician and a composer and you, you write novels. So I wanted to know, you know, if you had any quick thoughts on, on music and schema and models and consciousness and, and how those, because I've actually talked, I don't know if you had a chance to look or, but now I've talked to two people about specifically about music and consciousness, and they're both very interesting. Um, but I wonder if you had any thoughts, and it, just that the two played together as to how you see music in terms of your theories. I'm not sure I've really thought about that much. That's a very interesting question. I, I think at the level at which I study consciousness, um, I study how we get to be conscious of something rather than studying the thing itself that we're conscious of. And right. I would think of music as one of the th kinds of things that we can be conscious of. It's a domain. It's, um, it's part of the content. And so the way I've studied consciousness hasn't really touched on, on that, you know, really rich, uh, complex uh, content. Uh, so I, I have not really... Studied consciousness in a way that's, that's that's mixed with the music. I think the music is, uh, yeah, it's it's um, it's I I definitely am, am in, into music, <laughs> but it, yeah. it has not specific relationship to my science. What about the creativity when you when you have a, when you have a burst of creativity or inspiration, and you come up with a riff or a phrase, you know, or whatever it is. Do you ever do you ever think to yourself, how did my brain come up with that in, in terms of, of, of modeling? Was it something that your brain was able to allocate these resources and build a, a certain schema of a, a small subset of a composition on on its own? Have you thought about the creativity side of it? 
yes, of course. Creativity is very mysterious. Uh, and I don't know yeah. how that comes. Uh, but I suspect that in a way, so the way many people think of consciousness, creativity would be a part of it. Um, but the way I, I think of it, I think increasingly the way uh, philosophers and scientists are thinking of it, it's kind of a separate thing. Like you could have a creative uh, 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 entity that's not conscious. It's creative and it uh, even does music, composes music or uh, whatever it's creative about. It could be autonomous. It could make decisions. It could be intelligent. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it would claim to have a subjective internal experience of what it's doing. Uh, and so yeah. in a sense, it's kind of separate questions. But I'm completely mystified by uh, where the, the creativity comes in. That's a really interesting topic of um, psychological uh, research, uh, creativity. Right. Yeah. Yeah, okay, interesting. Um, the novels that you write, does the AST ever work its way into those? Uh, interesting question. Not really. I mean, I think some okay. of my psychological background uh, gets woven into the, those novels. Um, okay. But um, the AST in specific, I don't think so. Maybe the next one. Maybe I'll work it All in. All right, well, I'll keep, I'll, keep, I'll keep an eye out. I'll keep an eye out. Um, and then the, the final question is just... Uh, what, what else is in your future? What should we look out for other than, than the next novel, the next composition? You know, what, what studies, uh, potential breakthroughs, what, what are you looking for out there that, you know, and now I'm thinking also about those, those other disciplines you said might actually have some synergy with you. What, what are you excited about for the future in terms of what you are studying? Well, really generally, we're trying to understand, <clears throat> we're trying to understand consciousness at such a specific engineering level that it's possible to even build it artificially. And um, whether we'll be able to do that or whether other people with much more technical expertise will be able to take that on, uh, I'm not sure. But that's kind of what we're looking for. We, we're very interested in uh, having machines I mean, we already have machines that are autonomous and that can make decisions of their own. And that can be very dangerous, actually, as many people have pointed out. Uh, but we're right. really interested in seeing if we can build machines that know what a conscious mind is and can recognize it in others and recognize it in itself. And in that way, kind of uh, have a chance to be more pro-social. Uh, I mean, the heart of how people are pro-social, the heart of how people get along with each other is the fact that we know what consciousness is and we can attribute it to each other. Uh, and so we're actually very interested in that direction uh, in the future. Yeah, yeah, that would be fascinating. And as a, a former computer scientist myself, maybe, um, it does seem like models are really the way to get there. Yes, yeah, outstanding. Well, is there anything else before we wrap up? Anything else that you that I did not ask you or that you'd like to get out there? Uh, no, that was pretty thorough, I think. Okay, awesome. Well, Dr. Graziano, I really appreciate your time today and uh, I'm very grateful that you took the time to answer these questions and uh, I just want to thank you for that. Sure, my pleasure. 
That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the Consciousness Podcast at our Twitter handle at ConchCast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.